Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 311, Fears of State. In 1583, a well-born Warwickshire squire's son set out from home to travel to London. John Somerville was not a discreet young man. He declared loudly in the local that when he caught up with Elizabeth, he meant to shoot her through with his dag and hoped to see her head to be set on a pole for that she was a serpent and a traitor. Now this confused me, ladies and gentlemen, since I have it on good authority from a friend, Camilla, who emigrated to Oz, that a dag is a sheep's tail covered with sheep's poop and all that sort of dirty stuff. And the thought of an Elizabethan nobleman setting about the Virgin Queen in front of her horrified court with an old crappy sheep's tail was disorienting. But apparently, in days Elizabethan, it meant a pistol, which does make more sense, it has to be said. Anyway, James Somerville was hauled in for questioning, and it was quickly identified he was probably mentally ill. But nonetheless, he had connections in Warwickshire, and a Catholic priest, Edward Arden, was then also discovered. Both of them were convicted. Somerville died in prison, apparently by his own hand. Somerville had not been the first to plot the murder of Elizabeth. The case of William Parry added fuel to the fires of panic. A Jesuit, William Holt, was arrested for gathering a Catholic alliance, but fled to Scotland. And Walsingham urged the English envoy there that he should be put to the boots and forced by torture to deliver what he knoweth. Fortunately for Holt and for humanity, James VI refused to permit such brutality and connived to allow Holt to escape. While all this was going on, Walsingham was authorising the torture of one Francis Throckmorton in a plot that would be revealed to be an international conspiracy to put Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne by the Catholic League, Spain, the Pope and an expected general revolt of English Catholics. Hopefully after last week's episode, you'll all be across the febrile air of panic and religious fury. Just starting off this week with a couple of plots to make sure your temperature doesn't drop from the fever pitch to which tales of Elizabethan plotting has raised you. What we're going to concentrate in the rest of this episode is the activity and services that Elizabethan England deployed in the belief that it faced an existential threat, whether by foreign evasion internal rebellion or the murder of their childless queen. And then we'll spend a bit of time looking at how Catholics responded to this threat, the hideous dilemma under which they lived their lives. I don't know if you've seen the film Elizabeth in 1998 with Kate Blanchett as Elizabeth, 
but it's a lot of fun if you're looking for something to do. It covers the early years of Elizabeth's reign, and Geoffrey Rush plays Walsingham. I could be wrong, but I think the history is all wrong here, because he goes to Scotland to see Mary of Guise, and she died in 1560, well before Walsingham became a thing. But hey, films are about entertainment, they're not documentaries. And the thing about Walsingham is that he has presence and a reputation. When I was a lad, it was all about how Walsingham was the clever spymaster who saved England from ruthless foreign enemies. And that's what the film is like. Walsingham, the amoral and ruthless spymaster, shown as probably killing Mary of Guise in the film. Well, I hope we've seen a slightly more varied and complex Walsingham here in the sense that he has been very much involved in foreign policy. And we've stressed his closeness to Burley and his role on the Privy Council. But what ifs? I imagine it's still the spymaster you're all remembering about Walsingham. Because he did do that too, to be fair. And in that regard, Walsingham has a terribly dicey reputation. I guess anyone who deals with spycraft and espionage probably inevitably does so. It seems like a world of moral compromises. Not that I would know. The closest I have ever got to it is a John le Carre novel. But Catholic commentators hated and feared him. And they painted a picture of a man who stepped over the line from seeking out the truth to entrapment, over the line from inquisitor to agent provocateur. Conversely, his supporters robustly claim that he stayed on the right side of the line and simply had a talent for discovery. And furthermore, some recent historians made a connection between Walsingham's work and the establishment of the modern security services MI5 and MI6. Such claims are way over the top as it happens. A closer comparison is between Thomas Cromwell and Walsingham. Not sure if you can cast your minds back, but Cromwell sat in the centre of a vast network of communicants of all types. Reports came to his ears of treasonous declarations made in pubs, all the way through to his correspondence with Lady Hungerford about her husband's iniquities. Walsingham was the same. There was no structured organisation like MI5, just a network of informants and, as they called them, intelligences, who were placed all over Europe. There was no central office, or if there was, it sat in Walsingham's home on Seething Lane in the city of London. There, Walsingham catalogued and stored the vast reams of correspondence that came from his contacts. And he employed a group of administrators, many of whom served him for a long time and forged strong relationships with each other. Lawrence Thompson, worked as Walsingham's secretary for 15 years, for example. Walter Williams saw service at the French embassy, ran letters from England to the continent and worked on surveillance operations at home. All of the men working with Walsingham at Seething Lane were said to have one thing in common. They were all Protestants of the hotter kind, conscious of being part of a war, bolstered in their relentless pursuit by shared memories of St Bartholomew's Day. Agents across the continent used ciphers, codes and secret ink. Once again, the Italians, masters of diplomacy, were also masters of using ciphers. Crucial to Walsingham's team, then, was one Thomas Phillips. Thomas was the son of a London cloth merchant and had a gift for languages, ancient and modern, and mathematics. 
Put together, this gave him a talent for cryptoanalysis. He was Walsingham's code cracker and dedicated enough to his trade to easily refuse Mary Queen of Scots' attempts to bribe him. He worked alongside one Timothy Bright, who also devised a system of shorthand you might be interested to know. One of those channels of information were official and in plain view. Ambassadors and embassy staff in the major centres, for example. Renaissance Europe was mad keen on espionage and diplomacy, but while investing in resident ambassadors and envoys in foreign parts, at home they also make darn sure foreign ambassadors were always watched and kept away from sensitive information and debates at court. Now Elizabeth was a master of such games. She drove the Spanish ambassadors absolutely potty with her delaying tactics and evasions. Other contacts, though, came through merchants and the factors of commercial enterprises working abroad. Christopher Hodgson, for example, worked for the Merchant Adventurers and he sent a stream of news home to Walsingham, including the proposed launch of Thomas Stukler's expedition to Ireland. Walsingham received intelligences from 46 different countries. Less well-defined and public, though, were the semi-professional intelligences from all sorts of walks of life. The inns of court actually were favourite recruiting grounds, but of all organisations of state in Elizabethan England, there were none so socially inclusive as Walsingham's. Malaverney Catlin is a good example. He'd served as a soldier in the Low Countries before sending Walsingham a letter offering his services. He infiltrated the Catholic community in France, and then Walsingham embedded him in the Marshalsea prison in England, where he picked up news and plans from the Catholic priests there. Prisons were often hotbeds of religious activity, where all those incarcerated priests did as much as they could to share information, but also to convert inmates. Catelyn was a very enthusiastic Protestant, and this was what motivated him primarily to work for Walsingham. But, it must be said, that also he worked for money, as did most of Walsingham's intelligences. Another example was one Nicholas Burden. Now, he infiltrated English Catholic networks and fed the news back to Walsingham. He wrote of his motivations. Whensoever any occasions shall be offered, wherein my may adventure some rare and desperate exploit, such as may be for the honour of my country and my own credit, you shall always find me most resolute and ready to perform the same. This only I crave, that though I profess myself a spy, which is a profession odious though necessary, that I prosecute the same not for gain, but for the safety of my native country. Burden's work was without doubt dangerous, and he sounds like a complete adrenaline junkie. But then, I don't suppose field agents give that much value to a quiet night in with a good book. The patriotic rhetoric is very Elizabethan, as nationalism in England rose to fever pitch, and glory was also clearly the name of the game. But we might also note that Burden, and those like him, worked for two other less noble motivations, for power and for money. Burden accepted bribes from Catholics and money from Walsingham, 
and in his reporting to Walsingham, he often held the power of life and death over his targets. It was a world as murky as the pool outside the mines of Moria, and which contained monsters just as dangerous. Walsingham had a real talent for turning agents in foreign and Catholic communities. George Gilbert, for example, was a member of William Allen's English College, arrested and turned by Walsingham and becoming a vital link in the Babington plot that would finally land Mary Queen of Scots in water too hot for her to handle. Anthony Tyrrell was another who passed as an imprisoned Catholic priest and sent information back from prison to Walsingham, living a double life until he'd done his time and took up preaching at St Paul's Cross. All of this needed money. Money to pay agents, money to pay for information. Walsingham's contemporary Robert Beale wrote of him that With money he corrupted priests, Jesuits and traitors to betray the practices against this realm. It is difficult to see exactly how much money was spent by the state in the secret service pursuit of its enemies but money was paid under the royal seal rather than voted by Parliament, which I guess is par for the course, need-to-know basis, nudge-nudge, wink-wink, say-no-more-say-no-more sort of thing. But there seems to have been an annual grant to Walsingham of 750 quid, rising to 2,000 quid by the mid-1580s and then dropping back to 1,200. So it's not a vast amount of money, to be honest. The indications are that Walsingham supplemented the grant from his own income, in marked contrast to Burley, and I mean marked. Walsingham was as poor as a church mouse when he died, and one of the reasons may have been that he was paying his agents from his own pocket. Meanwhile, of course, other nations of the world were doing exactly the same as Walsingham, paying agents and informants trying to turn English agents. One intriguing character in this was one Sir Edward Stafford, a man so high up the tree that George Smiley would have had a heart attack if he'd been around to see his goings-on. Edward Stafford held the crucial post of ambassador in Paris from 1583. He was not a Walsingham fan, bypassing him and trespassing on his operations in Paris, so much so that Walsingham actually had his letters seized by his own searchers when they came in on the way to Burley, to Stafford's helpless fury. Stafford, though, got into debt, and the Duke of Guise, head of the Catholic League, gave him 6,000 crowns to see the contents of his diplomatic bag. He then netted a further 2,000 crowns from Mendoza, the Spanish ambassador, now, Walsingham came to know all this by 1586, and anyway, Stafford was hardly discreet, loudly proclaiming his support for Mary Queen of Scots. And yet, Walsingham did not move on Stafford. Why not? Maybe he had insufficient evidence, and Stafford had Burley's confidence and was therefore difficult to bring down. Or, just maybe, Walsingham was playing him. In 1587... Stafford was recruited by Mendoza, and in April of that year, Stafford passed news to Mendoza that he'd had from Walsingham that the Queen was delaying Drake's expedition to Cadiz. In fact, the Queen was doing no such thing, and this was completely false information. Walsingham knew full well that Drake had already set off the crafty old bugger. 
When he realised that he'd been had, Stafford hastily sent another note to Mendoza. But Walsoon had successfully spread misinformation and distrust. However, Stafford remained in place and without doubt handed out a lot of damage to English interests. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Of course, as well as trying to cover foreign intrigues and plots, the Elizabethan state set itself to hunt down, imprison, expel or execute Catholic priests coming in from abroad. Now, whereas the Marian priests had roved over much of England, the new seminary priests and Jesuits concentrated very much on gentry households in the south of England, a tactic about which there has been much healthy debate. On the one hand, it has been criticised as essentially leaving the faithful Catholics in most of England to its fate, including parts of the north and west, where surviving Catholic sentiment had been particularly strong, as the rising of the North had demonstrated. In addition, these missions were essentially a failure, in the sense that by the end of the reign, Catholicism in England no longer survived as a mass religion, practised by little more than 1% of the population. However, the counter to that argument is to reflect that the possibilities for Catholicism to remain a mass church given the level of focus and repression focused on it, were thin indeed, without foreign invasion and or internal rebellion. The laissez-faire attitude adopted by the state in Ireland would never have been acceptable in England. And to focus on gentry households made sense. They had much more potential to hide and support priests and they might serve as the centre to support servants and villagers within the household's sphere of influence. Also, it's just not clear what alternative strategy would have worked better. One consequence, however, would be that Catholicism would become a religion associated with social elites until mass immigration from Ireland in the 19th century changed all that. Priests came ashore in secret, with fake histories and alibis to cover them, moving around in Elizabethan England being no easy matter. This was a time when people were meant to stay in their parishes unless they had a special reason and if you were travelling therefore you were an object of suspicion. Priests might go to London where they might find support. The Jesuit Henry Garnet was leader of the Jesuit mission in England as a whole from 1586. Robert Southwell ran the Jesuit operation in London. So from there priests would find help before they went into the countryside to serve their communities to the houses of known Catholic families. Harbouring a priest was a dangerous business, and it would get steadily more dangerous as the rain wore on. Pursuivants and priest hunters could turn up without any notice and search properties for hours or even days. There would be absolutely no fluffy stuff about demanding to see search warrants or declaration that the House of an English was their castle. Such claims might only delay your English pursuivants by giving them a fit of the giggles for a few moments. 
Catholic houses began to acquire secret hiding places where missionaries could shelter and also where they could hide their kit. The church had stipulated that priests carrying out services without the proper dress and equipment would be committing immortal sin, and those materials were bulky. Early hiding places were quite crude, and priest hunters soon learned to investigate dead spaces and look for cavities behind walls and fireplaces. But through the 1580s, priest holes became much more sophisticated, which is where I can introduce a new Little John to English history, this Little John being a carpenter from Oxford called Nicholas Owens. Incidentally, to digress briefly, I had been given to understand that getting my terminology wrong between joiners, carpenters and cabinet makers can result in upset and hurt, and I am eager to avoid offence. So, if after hearing this you feel that Nicholas Owens should not be described as a carpenter, I apologise and you can write in. Anyway, Nicholas Owens was something of a genius in architectural concealment, creating priest holes that were almost impossible to find. Many also with ways to feed priests who might be trapped while searches went on for days. And indeed, Owens himself was once caught in 1606 after being starved out through a four-day search. So good was Owens' work that there were a few of his hideouts still surviving. One example was discovered by accident in 1894, having lain undiscovered for 300 years. In 1594, Owens was arrested and thrown in the tower. As the Jesuit John Gerard pointed out, Owens could have undermined more Catholics than anyone else if he had talked. But despite being tortured in the tower, Owens, with extraordinary courage, gave nothing away. And he even managed to help Gerard escape the tower in 1597. Owens was released but caught again in 1606 and once more tortured, this time so ruthlessly that his guts were ruptured and he died an agonising death, once again without revealing anything. The official report claimed that he'd killed himself with a blunt knife, evidence that the official cover-up has been alive and well for many centuries. Raids would, of course, have been absolutely terrifying and could come at any time without warning. So as an example, in 1586 a priest called Anthony Tyrrell had been arrested and turned and revealed a number of priests and country houses. So later that same year, a notorious priest hunter, Richard Young, led a raid on the Vaux household, arriving early one morning in an attempt to catch the family at mass. An account of the raid, the fruitless raid as it happens, survives, probably from Jesuit Robert Southwell. The pursuivants were raging all around and seeking me in the very house where I was lodged. I heard them threatening and breaking woodwork and sounding the walls to find hiding places. Yet by God's goodness, after four hours' search, they found me not. They separated from them only by a thin partition rather than a wall. Of truth, the house was in such sort watched for many nights together that I perforce slept in my clothes in a very straight, uncomfortable place. Some of the pursuivants earned a particularly evil reputation. One of these, and probably the most notorious, was Richard Topcliffe, whose evident enthusiasm for pursuing torture and execution revolted both sides. 
so much so that his nephew renounced the family name. In his pursuit of the Jesuit Robert Southwell, Topcliffe applied for a warrant for torture, stipulating that the prisoner should be manacled at the wrists, with his feet standing up on the ground and his hands but as high as he can reach against the wall. Southwell would be tried and executed, claiming that he had been tortured no fewer than ten times. At his trial, he denied having any intention of treason, seeking only to administer the sacraments to those that desired them. He was, of course, found guilty as a Jesuit and was hung, though the executioners in this particular time made sure that he died before the grisly disembowelling and body part distribution took place. Executions in Tudor times often had something of the carnival atmosphere about them, horribly enough, and the authorities wanted the execution to be exemplary, and the message therefore to be clear that these priests they were executing were both Catholics and traitors. The impact on the crowd could be very complex, though. Priests with incredible bravery sought to make the example one of their choosing, not of their executors. They sought to die with pious calm and dignity. So when Ralph Sherwin was hanged, drawn and quartered at Tyburn, he prayed for the Queen first, before kissing the hands of his executioner. Walsingham understood the impact of such courage and doubted the effectiveness of executions, noting that they moved men to compassion and draweth some to affect their religion upon conceit that such an extraordinary contempt of death cannot but proceed from above. The English Catholic community then faced terror and persecution if they wished to pursue their religion and constant humiliation which they felt deeply, especially the gentry, prevented from following their natural role in society by penal laws. As Thomas Tresham wrote bitterly, we are disgraced, defaced, confined from our native countries, imprisoned, impoverished, forsaken of friends, triumphed upon by foes, scorned of all men. How then did the Catholic community react to this pressure? Let us take the lives of a couple of individuals and see how they reacted. At one end of the scale we might look at the Brown family, starting with Anthony Brown, Viscount Montague. Brown took an approach that flew in the face of the Jesuit view, who viewed the history of English Catholicism as part of the wider European struggle and therefore set their faces against any accommodation with the Elizabethan regime at all. Anthony and Magdalene Brown disagreed with this. They sought to live within English society. Having said that, they made few concessions as far as their household piety was concerned. They ran a relentlessly Catholic household and in fact after Antony's death Magdalene took things up a notch, building a chapel with a choir and pulpit, celebrating mass to a congregation of often 120 people. One of the standard models in Catholic historiography for gentry is the idea of retreat retreat from society and the state church into a life of separatism and Catholic household piety. The Browns rather defy that model because although they kept a very traditional and pious Catholic household, they also believed that this was not incompatible with making some accommodation 
with the Elizabethan church. So, Antony was what we've already referred to as a churched papist. He attended church as Elizabeth demanded. That did not require him or his wife or indeed his household to creep around pretending to be good Protestants. His Catholicism was acknowledged by state and society. But his accommodation with the Church of England allowed him access to the kind of role in local government that the gentry expected to have. And indeed in national affairs. He acted as commissioner in the trial of Mary Queen of Scots, for example. In 1591, he was also honoured with a visit by Queen Elizabeth herself. His career also points to a moderating view, though, of the Privy Council and state policy. While the attitude towards priests and Jesuits was bloodthirsty and relentless, the search for some sort of accommodation with Catholic subjects was never stopped and tended to be pragmatic. If it had not, Tresham would have ended up on the gallows. So in Suffolk, for example, the justices of the peace agreed a series of annual payments by recusant gentry. This approach of compounding, as it was called, was effectively a Catholic tax, which demonstrated temporal loyalty without having to subscribe to what Catholics saw, of course, as heretical practices. It is probably bold of me to suggest a parallel with the religious taxes on non-Muslims in the Ottoman Empire. I'm sure somebody will put me right on that one. On the other end of the scale were those Catholics who saw rebellion or invasion as the only way out of this conundrum. Many of them fled to the continent, where they openly supported Spanish and papal efforts to invade or replace England with the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. Certainly, senior Catholic clerics, including Cardinal William Allen, urged the people of England and Ireland to join with the Catholic army in the holy war against the infamous, depraved, accursed, excommunicate heretic. Philip and Mary Howard were examples who had stayed in England of Catholics. Mary Howard was strongly and outspokenly supportive of the Catholic cause after converting to Catholicism, so much so that Elizabeth had her committed to the care of Sir Thomas Shirley for a year. Meanwhile, her husband Philip followed her lead after reading of the debates with Edward Campion, and he attempted to flee, but was caught, arrested, tried and convicted. He spent the rest of his life imprisoned in the tower, where he prayed in his prison cell for the happy success of the Spanish. However, very many Catholics dealt with all of these pressures and problems by withdrawing in some way to what might be called hearth religion. The man of the house would maybe keep the pressure off by taking the church papist approach so that the state did not look too closely at the activities of the family. But the woman of the house, like Magdalene Brown, would take the lead in ensuring the houseward was run on the lines as close to proper practice as possible, organising the reading of devotional manuals in a family setting, marking the traditional feasts and ceremonies. When the hallowing of tapers for Candlemas was banned, Catholics in North Wales transferred the ceremony into their own homes and put candles in their windows on the 2nd of February. So it's worth noting just how central the woman of the household was in sustaining Catholicism. If the man of the household behaved as the church papist, ever more responsibility came to women to ensure Catholic traditions and piety were maintained, away from the suspicious glare of Sauron's eye from the barred door of Westminster. So the super summary of all this then, and the final impression, 
is a rather a mess, I suppose, a series of people and organisations who were paid to wish they were not in this position and yet could not escape the logic towards which their beliefs of their time drove them. The Privy Council, desperately trying to achieve the established tradition of religious uniformity and protect the state against a plethora of real and imagined enemies at home and abroad. A Catholic church, a once desperate to succour individuals in their religious needs and further a European-wide religious conflict. And between the two of them, ordinary Catholics forced to make agonising choices and try to negotiate their way through the minefold, a task as difficult as milking the pigeon, which is incidentally an 18th century expression for trying to achieve the impossible. The answer, of course, was toleration, but there were very few parts of Europe ready yet for that solution. Now, one of the drivers of conflict remained the real and present threat to the life of the Queen, and the catalyst for those threats was the presence of a viable Catholic alternative to her, namely Mary, Queen of Scots. And it is to Mary that we shall turn next time. However, before that, there will be a guest episode by Philip Rowe of the History of European Theatre podcast. You might have noticed that in talking about Walsingham and his security services, I neglected to mention the obvious topic of one Kit Marlowe. Well, that's because Philip is going to give us a complete episode on the lad's career, which shall be next time. And then I'll be back after that, although I might have a week off. So meanwhile, thank you very kindly for listening, for your reviews and for all that kind of thing. Please come to the Facebook site for some chat and go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk to sign up and become members. Good luck everyone and see you all soon. powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.